This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hello there, everybody. This is Dan Gore with Icons, the Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Welcome back. I am so ecstatic to introduce you to someone that I've admired for a long time, someone that is uber, uber creative, that's created such a niche, niche market and uh, what he's done. And you're going to be mesmerized when you listen to her story. So please welcome my new friend, Mr. John Epperson, better known to the world as Lipsinka. Hello there, sir. Hello, Dan. That was quite the build-up. Thank you. <laughs> How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. So I'm so excited to talk to you because you know I saw your show. Oh my gosh, I'm really going to date myself. But I saw I saw your show in Los Angeles when it came through one year, and it was that you probably won't remember from you've done thousands of shows, but it was on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And I think it was the old Directors Guild uh, Theater, but I might be mistaken. It was just uh, east of uh, or west of La Cienega on Sunset. And uh, that's where I saw you. And I believe it was in the early 90s. And back then I was such a youngster that I didn't understand what you had created until my creative mind matured. And I realized, wow, this guy really created something extremely special mesmerized when I saw you, but didn't realize craft that it took to do that until decades later. So thank you for being part of this interview. I just wanted to talk to you about uh, your upbringing and how you got started. So uh, I did a little research. It looks like possibly you were born in the, in the South. Yes, I was born in the South. But before we get into that, let's just set the record straight. You said you saw my show in Los Angeles and that it was west of La Cienega on Sunset. That would have been 2001. The Tiffany Theater. Yeah, it was a Tiffany, yes. I don't, I don't know if it's still there. It's not the old Director's Guild building, which is further east on Sunset. I did do a show in Los Angeles in the early 90s, but it was not on Sunset. So I think you're talking about the show in 2001. It was at the Tiffany at Theater, the... and the Tiffany Theater is no longer there. So you are correct. Okay. Yeah, you're correct. It is no longer there. It's near a huge high rise there now. So yeah, that building yeah. got destroyed. So growing up in the South, we, did you stay around? Is, is it Mississippi? Yes, I was born and grew up in a town called Hazelhurst, Mississippi, which is kind of in the middle of the state, slightly to the west. Hazelhurst is probably best known for being the birthplace of the blues musician Robert Johnson and for being the setting of a play by Beth Henley that won the Pulitzer Prize in the early 80s called Crimes of the Heart that was made into a film in the mid-80s with Jessica Lange and Diane Keaton and Sissy Spacek. But that's where I grew up. And how long were you there until you kind of left the nest? I graduated from high school a year early at age 17 and then went straight off to college. But I didn't go very far away to college. I only went 30 miles north. So I went to college. I graduated in 76. 
And were you involved in theater then in college, or were you looking at doing something else in the arts? Well, in college, I was training to be a classical pianist, and that's what I got my degree in. But there was theater there a little bit. They did a musical every year, although I think my senior year they did not. I was in three musicals there, and then I was also getting involved in the community theater in the city where the school was. The city is Jackson, which is the capital. And they had three, uh, you know, local theater companies there, and I did things with them. And I really enjoyed that feeling of being loved by the audience as an actor more than I enjoyed playing the piano for the public. And when did you start so, first playing playing the piano? Was that something as a, a childhood uh, talent that came, or did when did that start? Yes, it, it came very naturally to me. I had two older sisters. I say had because one of my sisters died in a car accident, but they both studied piano. It was the kind of thing that was expected of females, you know, in in high school. But I would watch them, and I just took to it very naturally. When I was old enough, I started studying with the teacher that they were studying with, and I was one of the few male persons in the town who studied piano. And uh, it was something I could do, and I did it well, and it became part of my identity. But then I discovered acting. So when you were growing up there, was there anything, I mean, did, did, was there a television watching in the household? Were you able to see any sort of, besides, uh, you know, seeing movies and so forth, did you ever see any guys in drag at all on TV? Was there anything that kind of inspired you or that hadn't even became a thought to you yet? The only person I remember seeing was um, Jim Bailey on the Carol Burnett show. I don't know how many times he was on there, maybe twice, but I especially remember his Barbara Streisand impersonation on the Carol Burnett show. And then some years later, I found out that he had been on Here's Lucy. By then, I was in college and I wasn't paying much attention to television. But it was kind of fascinating to see him being so accepted on primetime television that way. Sure, sure. Because nothing really existed, really. I, I, I'm assuming. I'm making an assumption that in 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 your hometown and around town, that really didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> the closest thing would have been that um, the Junior Chamber of Commerce. A couple of times, I remember. I don't. I don't know how many times they did it, but I only remember seeing it twice. I think they did. They did an event that was a fundraiser. I guess for themselves. It was called Womanless Wedding, and they had it at the school auditorium, and it was all men playing all the different roles in a in a fake wedding. And so there was a bride, but it was a man in drag, and there was the mother of the bride, and it was a man in drag, and these were all men that I knew, you know, that you know, my barber, for instance, was one of them. And then the father of the bride showed up with a shotgun, of course. 
seeing all these men in drag, especially the fact that they were men that I knew, was anarchy. I just, it's just, to use an old phrase, it blew my mind. Certainly. To see them behaving that way and getting dressed up. Now, I, I can't say that they really put a lot of effort into it. And then the dressing up part, they managed to find a crappy wig, you know, and a dress that wouldn't zip up the back. What do you do about that? Was there any impact from like the Jim Bailey impression? Or did you have any inclination that maybe you might be in drag one day at that time? At that time, no. But I do... As I look back, it must have felt very liberating for me to see all those men, the men that I knew in that small town dressed as women. But it wasn't until I got to college that I saw my first real drag show at a gay bar in Jackson. I think the first time I went there, I probably was underage. I was probably 17. Okay. And what year is and this? Then this? It would have been 73, early 73. My birthday's in April. Do you remember the the queens that you saw that first time that you came in? The first time I went to that gay bar, there was no show. It was the second time I went, and we didn't know there was going to be a show. We, my friend and I were just going because it was something to do. And then it turned out they were having a drag show. And it was a troupe of at least three, maybe more than three, who were from Memphis. So there were, you know, there was at least one drag club in every city in the South, and they would travel around and perform at different places. And so this group was from Memphis. I remember some, later when I started going regularly seeing a troupe from Pensacola, and sometimes there would be someone from Houston. But these people were from Memphis. One of them, I remember, called herself Bell Star, which is an... <laughs> Was a, I think Belle Star was a legendary figure in the West, and she, this Belle Star, wore a poodle skirt, you know, 50s <laughs> poodle skirt, and then one of them billed himself as the only perambulating mouseketeer. I don't know if that means anything to you, but Walt Disney had a TV show in the late 50s and early 60s, I guess, called The Mouseketeers. Annette Funicello was a Mouseketeer, and Bobby Burgess, who later was a dancer on the Lawrence Welk show, he was a Mouseketeer. They were kids. It was a kid's show, a Disney show. And I guess this guy from Memphis had been a Mouseketeer when he was a kid. And now he was an adult, and he had become a drag performer, and he billed himself as the only perambulating Mouseketeer. Now, at the time, I didn't even know what the word perambulating yeah, meant. I'm waiting for you to educate me right now. So, well, it means <laughs> being able to being able to walk and stand. <laughs> so it's funny, right? Yes. That that's how he built himself, and he probably was only was. about 25, you know. But that's maybe he was 30. That's how he built himself. He had a name too, a drag name, but there. I do remember the MC saying, so-and-so, the only perambulating mouseketeer. You see the show, you're, you're, you, another, it makes another light impression on you at this game. Oh, arms. it made a huge impression on me. You know, it was an enormous impression. I, I was very frightened by it, and I didn't know why. 
And it was only years later that I finally decided I was frightened because I was looking at myself. Mm-hmm. And it was a frightening thing to see because drag was, especially in a small city in the South, a real stigma. Just listening to your story already, obviously, knowing how the story progresses, you're like this flower that's that's looking for the sun and you div- you blossom into this huge, huge bouquet. So, I mean, you're, not, you're, you're, in a, you're in a place that unless you get out of there, you're not going to blossom. <laughs> You'll be stagnant in this little town. But so, so when's the next time that you have this meetup with drag queens? I was so frightened by that uh, show that I saw and the place, the club, the gay bar was called Maze Cabaret, M-A-E, like May West, M-A-E apostrophe S, Maze Cabaret. About a year later, I had made a new friend who was very flamboyant, who had been a theater student at another college in Jackson, Mississippi. Believe it or not, there's more than one. There's at least three, maybe, well, at least four, actually. And this guy, his name was Dwight Adcock. He's dead now. He was very flamboyant, and I had hooked up with him somehow. And he said to me, do you ever go to May's Cabaret to see the drag show? And I said, well, I went once but I don't know that I want to go again. And he said, oh, no, you have to go. You have to go again. It's theater. Well, you see, I hadn't looked at it that way. I hadn't looked at it as theater. And also in that 12 months that had gone by, I had discovered that there is something called absurd theater and and Eugene Ionesco. And I had read about Charles Ludlam, who was performing in drag in New York, his style was called ridiculous theater. When my friend said, it's theater, I thought, hmm, okay, I'll go back. And by then, the the Maze Cabaret had moved to a larger space that was much better set up for doing a show. And I saw then my second drag show, and I watched it with new eyes because my friend had said, look at it as theater and look at it as absurd theater and ridiculous theater, and that's what I did. And then I thought, well, hmm, okay, yeah, but you can't really call this art or theater unless you take it to a place like New York City. Walking down the street in New York, you could call that a work of art if you wanted to, but in Jackson, Mississippi, they're not going to buy that. So that's when the seed got planted, not only for maybe doing something with drag performance in my future, but also moving to New York. And when did, when does that take place? When do you, how are you surviving financially? Are you just, your parents are helping? Are you working, playing the piano? Or you just have a regular job that's non-relevant to the outcome? You don't mean right now. You mean no. when I was... <laughs> yeah, you're not right now. <laughs> we're talking about... <laughs> we're still talking about you growing up, yeah. <laughs> uh, um. Well, I was in school, you know, I was so going to school full college. time, going to college going to full-time. school full time. Awesome, and awesome. In, in my second year of school, I discovered something called work study, which meant there were jobs that could be had on campus and you could make some extra money. Well, make some not just extra money, but money because I wasn't making any money. And, you know, my parents were paying my tuition and I was living on campus and eating meals there because that was part of the tuition. 
And had they known that you were gay yet, or assuming making that assumption you are, since you were going to gay bars, was that something that was spoken about then, or no? No, okay. no. And as a matter of fact, I've well, my father's dead now, but I've never come out to my mother. You know, I've never said I'm gay to my mother. <clears throat> but now I don't know if she could wrap her head around this. I don't even believe in the terms gay and straight any longer. Sure. I think those are outmoded, old-fashioned terms. I just call myself human. <laughs> yeah. Younger generation educates me. My niece, who's 17, educates me every day. So I feel like a very old man. <laughs> well, my niece, my niece calls herself pansexual. But I don't, I don't even that for myself. Like I said, I just call myself human. But of course, that going to a gay bar at that time would have been practically a subversive act. And so I didn't tell them. Um, I do remember, well, my mother and I, we, we watched the Carol Burnett show together. Because I, I, uh, another way I found that I could make money was playing the organ. Because I, I studied pipe organ also at a church. So every weekend I would travel back to Hazelhurst either on Saturday or on Sunday morning and play the organ at a church there. And if I was there on Saturday, then my mother and I watched the Carol Burnett show together. So <laughs> she saw Jim Bailey at the same time I did. I guess about a year after that, she and I were in New Orleans. This would have been around 74. You may be too young to know this, but in the 70s, there was a a lot of interest in nostalgia. There was a big nostalgia boom going on. There were lots of movies set in the 30s and 40s being made in the 70s. But also, there was a documentary of sorts called That's Entertainment that was all about Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and the musicals that they made there in the 30s, 40s. And I had been to see That's Entertainment. I was fascinated by all of that. I was totally wrapped up in nostalgia and movies, and I still am. I saw um, That's Entertainment, and I got the sheet music, and I had the record. In the car in New Orleans, my mother and I went to see a Carmen Miranda movie. Nostalgia was so, such a big deal that a theater in New York, in New Orleans, a neighborhood theater called the Carrollton, started showing old movies instead of new movies. And my mother and I went to see a Carmen Miranda movie. And when we were driving back to our cousin's place, I said to my mother, I can do a June Allison impersonation. <laughs> you, you probably don't know who June Allison was. But she was a movie star. You do? I only remember she did the she did the 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 uh, the pens commercials. I think people. Made yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> and there were lots of jokes about that. Yes, but she was yeah. a big movie star in the '40s, and she was a terrible singer. And so I said to my mother, I can do a June Allison impersonation, and I did it. And my mo <clears throat> my mother said, and, and we're in the car, mind you, and I'm driving, and my mother said, well, you might become a female impersonator someday. Oh, wow. So it's almost as if she was saying it was okay mm -hmm. to do that. So you, you graduate, eventually graduate from college? Graduated from college in 76. And how soon and... did you find your way to the Big Apple? I lolled away the summer of 76, trying to decide what I should do. 
and a friend of mine who I had met at school uh, had moved to Denver, and I was in touch with him, and he had a boyfriend, and he said, why don't you come out here and you can sleep on the couch? And so I did. I drove to Denver all by myself, which was quite an adventure. And and I lived with this guy and his boyfriend, and then my friend and I, well, they broke up, and my friend and I found an apartment, and we were living there. And I found a job playing the piano at an amusement park. And even though it was the winter, the theater at the amusement park stayed open. The rides did not stay open, but the theater did. They had some talented people at the theater. They did they did old-fashioned melodrama, but they sent it up. They poked fun at it. And I had a job playing the piano and singing there during the intermission and after the show. And then somebody in New York who I had met in Mississippi contacted me and said he wanted to have, he wanted to do a cabaret show here in New York and was wondering if I would come and I could stay in his apartment and I would be the pianist for his act. And so I came to New York. That never panned out. He, we, I think we practiced twice and he, and he didn't have the piano at home. <laughs> and that seemed like it was a dead end. And I, looked around and you're stuck city. in a, you're stuck in New York or you were just temporarily there or are you stuck there now? I well I felt kind of stuck and I and I wanted to get away from him and be on my own and I looked around about trying to find a place to live and what and year is this just, is this late 70s this was or? seven this was early 77 and so I found New York just too daunting at that time, at that age, on my own, you know, having to pay the rent and feed myself and do and everything else that one has to do. And so I resolved that I would go back to Mississippi and that I would work for a year and save my money and come back to New York on my own terms. And that is what I did. I went back to Mississippi. Before I left Mississippi, I had been working at it for the ballet company there playing the piano. And so when I went back, I was able to pick up work at that ballet company again. And I worked there for over a year and uh, then moved to New York on my own terms at the end of June in 1978. And between the Denver, the Denver excursion and then New York, was there any impressions of drag? Have you, did you see drag at all between those two trips and going back to Mississippi or drag wasn't part of your thought process at that time? Yes, it was. I, I did go see drag shows in Denver and I enjoyed that a lot. And uh, then the, the, the time that I was in New York was only for six or seven weeks. And I don't remember seeing any kind of drag performance in New York at that time. Uh, I saw a lot of Broadway shows, but I don't remember seeing any kind of drag show. By the way, I should tell you, when I was a senior in college in February of 76, I went with a school group to London and Paris. And in London, we didn't have to do everything together every day, every second, every night. And so one night I went on my own to see Danny LaRue, who was a big star. He was like a Broadway star yeah. in London, West End star. And I saw him do a show in the West End called The Exciting Adventures of Queen Daniela. 
I don't remember all the details about the show, but I do remember that it was packed, and it was a lot of what looked like grandmothers with their grandkids. It wasn't a gay bar in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a big Broadway-sized theater with a mainstream audience. So these impressions are making some sort of some sort of watering the seed in your in your brain. I'm assuming when you're seeing this. So drag is becoming oh. poss- possibly something that might be attainable and more on the art theater art level for you. Yes, yes, all of that was feeding my little brain, and then I got when I got back to Mississippi. Of course, the gay bar was still there, same place, and they were doing shows, and I went to see them. But I, uh, like I said, I never, I never performed there. So I you was get, just an audience member. You stay there for a year. You return to Mississippi uh, after your small little trip to New York and Denver. And you're back in Mississippi. You start working back at the ballet company, saving your money. And then what, like 78, 79, you decide to depart again to New York? Yes, yes. And at the end of June of 78, I came back to New York. I had found a place to live. It was a transient hotel. They don't have them anymore, but there were still quite a few. I was on 71st Street, which is a very good location because the subway is right there. West 71st Street between Broadway and West End, which is actually a very nice block. At the time, I took it for granted because, uh, you know, and it was tree-lined, but... (laughs) I, I I wanted to get away from trees. I had enough of trees. I wanted to get away. I wanted to be in the big city. Now, after living here for 42 years, I can't wait to get back to trees again. <laughs> One of the very first things I did when I came to New York in 78, and a friend came with me, and, I, and two other friends had moved here three weeks before, and the plan was that those two that were already here, the three of us were going to be roommates. But we did have this other friend who came for a few days, and uh, he and I and one of the other friends, we all went to see Divine on stage. That was within a few days of being here, of getting here, the summer of 78. And is he doing his, because I did see you, uh, I did see you uh, recently for myself, it was the older documentary, uh, you talking about Divine. There's a Divine documentary. So is that is Divine in his own show, or is he a star in a in a play? Divine was the star of a play. It was not his own show. It was written by a man named Tom Ian, who later went on to write Dreamgirls, the musical, and directed by a man named Ron Link. And the, the play was called The Neon Woman. Now Tom Ian had written a play a couple of years earlier called Women Behind Bars that was a parody of a 1950 movie about a women's prison called Caged. And Women in Cages, like I said, that, it was a parody of Women in Cages. Women mm-hmm. Behind Bars was a parody of Caged. And I don't think Divine was in the original cast of Women Behind Bars, but he did do it. He did play the warden at some point, somewhere. And then women, um, The Neon Woman was a parody of a Barbara Stanwyck movie called Lady of Burlesque that was based on a book by Gypsy Rose Lee called The G-String Murders. 
And it seemed as if Tom Ian had been so inspired by Divine that then he wrote this play specifically for Divine called The Neon Woman. And I'm not sure that The Neon Woman has ever been performed by anyone else since then. But Divine was the lead, and, and it's about a strip joint, and it's mostly female characters. And he and used had to strip. Quiet... He, would, he would strip before the show started, I saw in this documentary of his, right? Is that the same play, right? He would do a number prior to the num- show starting? I don't remember that. It's very possible. So there's an impact when you see Divine. Did you know about Divine? You just happened to fall upon this play and he's in it. Well, by, by the time, by 78, I knew a lot about uh, Divine and about other people like Candy Darling and Hollywood Lawn and Jackie Curtis and Charles Pierce. I, know, I knew these names. I had never seen them in, you on knew, stage. You knew these names from television, like Charles Pierce, or just from the trade magazines? Or? No, I knew, them, I knew them from two magazines. One was called After Dark. The Magazine of Entertainment, I think, was the subtitle. After Dark Magazine. It was an entertainment magazine, mm-hmm. ostensibly, but it was also an excuse to put lots of half-naked pretty boys sure. on the cover <laughs> and inside. And it was published by the same company that published Dance Magazine, and it was the same editor. I guess, different audiences. And then the other magazine that I was aware of and where I saw these names and pictures was Andy Warhol's interview. Now, mind you, these were not easy to come by in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, you couldn't yeah, get I, them there at all. I was going to say, how do you, you get to, <laughs> You either had to have a subscription or you had to do what I did, which was travel to New Orleans once a month and pick them up there. Yeah, New Orleans was like the capital. Uh, that was like our Amsterdam. <laughs> well, New Orleans was where I would go for culture. Yeah. It was where I would go to see movies that they wouldn't show in Mississippi and where I would go to buy records and books and sheet music. I didn't never heard of Edith Piaf until I got to New Orleans. Oh, wow. So when you see Neon Woman and Divine, is there an impression made then from him? What was your first um, what was your first impression? You had seen him before, you read about him, you'd never seen him live. So when you saw him live, what was your take on it? feeling about him then in that particular show was he's not really an actor he's a personality that's how i saw him on stage live you know female trouble gives the lie to that he's obviously a real actor mm-hmm. but maybe it's the difference between being on stage and being on camera i was very reluctant to see female trouble because i so after i saw divine on stage then some months later, I saw Pink Flamingos. I guess I still was very Mississippi. That movie totally made me feel so dirty. I couldn't <laughs> wait to get out of there and go home and take a shower. <laughs> and then I met this older guy here, and he said, have you ever seen Female Trouble? And I said, well, I don't think I want to see that because I saw Pink Flamingos, and it was really disturbing. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Pink Flamingos is one thing. You have to see Female Trouble. You have to, you have to, you have to. So we did, and and Female Trouble is very different. And I think it is a much better movie, although now changed a lot. You know, I see the humor in Pink Flamingos, and the last sequence, the the press conference sequence, is hilarious, just wonderful. And it wasn't even the eating the dog turd that was disturbing to me. It was the two women in the basement that they were impregnating. That was really, really disturbing to me. Did you have second thoughts about being, because at that time, there's not many people 
you know, the, art, the artistically in theater doing drag. So did you have a second thought about, oh, maybe drag isn't something like, did you have a second thought about being associated with something like that? You mean after seeing Divine? Yeah, after seeing him, you know, your, your impression that you made, you know, with uh, Pink Flamingos. No, not really, because The Neon Woman was a very good show. It was very funny, and it wasn't a gross-out show like Pink Flamingos. So I knew it was possible to do drag theater that wasn't gross-out. And also, soon after I moved to New York, I saw Charles Ludlam, you know, who I had read about, as I mentioned earlier. When I first read about Charles Ludlam, when I was still living in Mississippi, it was because he had made a sensation doing Camille, his play, Camille, in which he played Marguerite Gautier, and Newsweek and Time were writing about it. That's how I first heard about mm. Charles Ludlam and Newsweek magazine. And so less than a year after I moved here, he was doing Camille again, reviving it. And so I saw him do it, and his work was even more sophisticated than what Tom Ayan and Divine had done with mm -hmm. the Neon Woman. And the audience was loving both of them. So I knew it was possible to do something that was more artistic. Didn't have to be just gross-out humor. And that's the angle when you're thinking of drag that John wanted to take, right? You, you didn't see yourself really performing in a gay club. You really want, you're looking for a different, uh, different uh, plantation, if you will, to plant the seed. Or were you... Yeah. Well, or was it possible, or did you did you think you would be in a gay club? I knew that I wanted to work in the legitimate theater, but I also knew that Bette Midler got where she got by starting out in a in a bathhouse. And so, if a if a club was the stepping stone to the legitimate theater, I was willing to do that. And and of course, those clubs presented themselves, and I did do that. So let me think. I was I moved here in '78. Maybe about nine months later, I went to this place called Club 57 that was at 57 St. Mark's Place in the East Village, which seemed like a very long way away, the Upper West Side. The reason I went there was because I was and am a movie buff, and the Village Voice had, which came out weekly, had a section that listed all the movies playing in town, all of the legitimate houses and all the first-run houses and the revival houses and the museums and the film societies. And then at the end of all of those listings, there was a section called Other Movies, and Other Movies listed all the oddball places that were showing the oddball movies. One week, I noticed it said that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was going to be playing at Club 57 at 57 St. Mark's Place. And I was had already been fascinated for years by Valley of the Dolls, and I'd seen the movie and I'd read the book, but I'd never had the opportunity to see Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> and so here was the opportunity, and I was willing to go anywhere to see a movie that interested me. And I rounded up a couple of friends, and we went. And I think the listing said it was going to play at 8 p.m. And so we got there like good little boys from the South and paid our money at 7.45. And there was hardly anyone there. Well, it was a nightclub and it took a while for the audience to show up. <laughs> and the, the movie that was scheduled to start at 8 didn't start until 8.45. 
But by the time it started at 8.45, it was packed with younger people our age. And the movie started, and they, most of them had seen the movie before, and the credits came on, and they were screaming at every name that came on the screen. <laughs> and then the movie played, and it was, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's it's quite a brilliant movie, and it's so bizarre and strange and pop and ridiculous and intentionally funny and but playing it deadpan and it's just a crazy movie and i thought oh yes and they screamed all the way through it and i thought to myself they say or they used to say i don't know if they still say that in new york if you wait long enough you'll find your niche well i found my niche took about nine months and i thought oh yes this is the place for me and I started going there as much as I could. And the second time I went, they were having a Doris Day night. They didn't always show movies, but they did. They had something different every night. But they did have a Doris Day double bill. And I went to that. I met Anne Magnuson, the actress, who was the manager of the club at the time. The guy who was hosting the Doris Day night was someone I had met in the ballet world, believe it or not. And he introduced me to Anne. And he said, John wants to become a member because you could be a member of Club 57. And I became a member and I started getting their calendar every month and their newsletter. And they started doing theater and live performance there. And I would that's where I did my first ever public lip syncing. And that was in, I think, August of 1980. So what led up to that? Just because you wanted to, you you knew it was going to happen and you felt that that was a place for you to debut some sort of performance. That particular show, when, when you got the newsletter, it told you what was coming up. And it, that, the newsletter for that month said, John Six is going to do his show called Acts of Live Art on August such and such. John Six was one of the act, one of the performers at Club 57. That wasn't his real name, John Sex. You can look him up on YouTube. So in the newsletter, it said, so if you want to be in the show, call John at his home number, blah, 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 <laughs> gave the number. And so I called the number and I left a message and I said, it's John Epperson and I want to be in the show. And weeks went by and I didn't hear from him. And then the day before, he called me and he said, so you're going to be in the show tomorrow night? And I said, but... I hadn't heard from you, and so <laughs> I didn't get anything together. And he said, but I need you. You have to be in it. And so I quickly learned a couple of lip syncs. And what were they? Do you, re do you remember? You must remember. Well, well, one of them, I don't think I've told you about this, but when I was um, a very young kid, my sisters, I told you they studied piano, but mm -hmm. They were both older than me, and my father had a record album called For Men Only. And the, the cover picture, and this is real, you can look it up on Google. <laughs> the cover picture is a picture of Jane Mansfield in a black cat suit, and she's on all fours and looking up at the camera. But she doesn't sing on the album. Her, it's just her picture was on there. She did a lot of pictures on album covers, but she wasn't on the album. Her just her picture. They used her picture to sell the album. Sure, sure. And and there were so that there were lots of covers of hit songs and from the fifties on this album. Some of them from Broadway shows. Like there were a couple of songs from Dan. Well, one of the songs was from Damn Yankees. Uh, Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And a song from The Pajama Game. 
another song from the damn Yankees, you gotta have heart, all you really need is heart. And there was a song on there that was popular, I guess, in the 50s called Pepper Hot Baby. And my sisters would lip sync to these songs on the record. And my mother and I were the audience. And my mother called it pantomime. She didn't call it lip syncing. But that was my first exposure to lip syncing, was seeing my sisters do it when we were just kids. Because my oldest sister, the one who died, she loved putting on shows. And so I already knew I had this. So now this record for men only is in my possession. I have it in New York, summer of 1980. I've been living here for over two years. I had the record in my possession. And so I quickly refreshed Pepper Hot Baby. And that's what I lip synced that night. And the other one was also something that I had never thought about lip syncing, but I'd listened to it over and over again and knew it fairly well, is from Valley of the Dolls, a song that Patty Duke's character sings on the telethon. If you've ever seen that movie, she sings a song called It's Impossible. It's impossible, tell you right now. If I tried it, I'd never know how. So I kind of knew those two songs already. It was pretty easy to learn them. And had you dabbled in in the look and makeup and hair, like how you had a little bit, a little bit, because I had been living in New York for two years, and and I did go out and drag for Halloween, and also I said I never performed at the gay bar in Mississippi when I was living there, and that is true. But a couple of months before I left Mississippi. The Rocky Horror Picture Show finally, you know, after two years, it finally arrived in Jackson. And so that was a good excuse to get and drag and go out in public and carry on. Walking in heels was something that came easily or that you just have many practice sessions at your house and behind closed doors? That, that came easily. I, I wouldn't want to walk in those heels now. And, and, you know, I used to walk in heels all over New York City on Halloween, but I wouldn't do that now. I'm 65 years old. But when you're 23, <laughs> you have the muscular ability to do that and not feel dead the next day. So what did what inspired you for as far as your look that those 24 hours you have to get ready? What do you go and grab? Do you happen to have the wig already, a wig that you're going to wear and a dress you're going to wear uh, for I, this performance? I guess I. Yeah, I did. I had something. I had some stuff. One of the, one of the outfits was um, blue and white polka dot house dress. I had my drag bag. You know, I wasn't really doing anything, but I was thinking about it. Interject real quick. You know, I love the majority of the people that I've spoken to. They have a plan and they have something that's going to happen. And, and there's planning that takes place before they prepare. You know, there's a plan. It's not just you put on drag and you hit you hit the club and you decide later that it's going to be a career. So I really admire that in you that the seed has been planted and it's baking. It's 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 you're nurturing it along the way. So that's what's, uh, you know, admirable about you. I, I like that. It wasn't like a flippant. I'm going to put on drag and, and go do it. So no, I don't know that, that my, I don't know that I had a really fleshed out plan like some of the others that you may have been talking to. I, but what I, what I don't I like, think I did. Well, I like I listening to I you. Listening to you, you are looking at these drags and understanding what you don't like and do like about their career, or you're at least having some sort of internal analogy or uh, analysis to yourself about what may come of you or 
what may not. So that's what I'm getting at, that I see an impression and it's leading, it's leading to the progression and uh, of where we end up. That's what I admire about you. It's not something, some people, you know, a lot of the performers that come to me, they just decide, oh, drag queens are kind of fun. I want to be a drag queen. And they just become a drag queen without understanding oh. what exactly is going to come of it or what can come of it. So I see. Well, I think there's probably a lot of those people now because they think they can become instant stars if they get yeah. on television. So you, the response at 50, Club 57, it's well received? I guess, you know, <laughs> but you have, to, you have to remember that this was an audience of surrealists. You know, we were, Keith Haring was a regular at Club 57 and uh, Klaus Nomi. We were all just misfits. And so whatever you did was going to be well received, <laughs> no matter how terrible it might have been. I guess it was well received. It wasn't until years, years later that I found out that there was a photographer in the audience. One of his images ended up being just a few years ago in a in a an exhibition at the Museum of City of New York, a picture of me performing that night. <laughs> I don't remember who was there. I don't know how many people were there. But it wasn't such a frightening experience that you don't do it again. It actually, actually leads you to have more performances at this place. Yes, although, Dan, it wasn't until about four years after that that I really started getting serious because so this lip-syncing performance at Club 57 was August of 1980. Well, later that month, I started my full-time job at American Ballet Theater where I had been working part-time for two years, but now they had offered me a full-time position with the company at the same time that I was starting the full-time job. Barishnikov was the artistic director. Mm. So this was a very exciting time at American Ballet Theater. Barishnikov's name was bringing in a lot of money. I had to be disciplined, and I had to go to work every day, five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday. And so I didn't... I wasn't able to go out nightclubbing like I had been doing and hanging out at Club 57. And we rehearsed at American Ballet Theater for 14 weeks, and then we went on tour for 14 more weeks, and then we came back here and rehearsed for four weeks at least, and then worked at Lincoln Center for eight weeks at the Metropolitan Opera House. And that takes us to the summer of 1981. And... Then I went this, that summer with a troupe of some of the dancers from American Ballet Theater. And the star of that troupe was a man who had defected from Russia named Alexander Gudinov. And I went to work with him as the pianist for the troupe, playing class, playing a little bit on stage. And when that trip was over with, well, it was a fantastic trip, by the way. It was um we went to Monte Carlo, and well, the first mm. stop was Palado, and then we went to Rome, and we went to Carcassonne in the south of France, and we went to Toulon wow. in the south of France. And while we were in Toulon, which is right on the ocean, we stayed at a villa that I guess the family it had been a private villa for themselves years earlier, but maybe they needed the money, and so they had turned the villa into a kind of guest house. And we were staying there. And this name may mean nothing to you because it's the name of a Frenchman, but a very old man in a wheelchair was there. His name was Louis Aragon. You know, we were from the United States. We were young. We didn't know who he was. Turns out he's a huge hero. 
in France, and there's a metro stop in Paris named after him now. Mm. And there's a Place Louis Aragon on the Ile Saint-Louis in the middle of Paris. But he was a very famous communist, surrealist, homosexual poet in France. Mm. We met him. He came there every summer and stayed there. He happened to be there at the same time we were. When I tell French people that, their mouths just drop open. You met Louis Aragon, you know. <laughs> it's like it's like meeting um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You met Ernest Hemingway, you know, that kind of name. But then when the trip was, all that touring was over with, there I was. And uh, a friend from Mississippi who had been living in New York for a couple of years, he came over and met me in Paris. So we were in Paris. And I was, of course, still interested in drag. And I went to a nightclub in Paris called Michou, which is spelled M-I-C-H-O-U. I'm hoping it's still there. Michou died about a year ago. Was he in uh, the Le Cajafal movie? No, but the Le Cajafal movie is kind of like Michou's place. Michou's place is in Pigalle. And I'm hope, like I said, I'm hoping it's still there. Of course, it wouldn't be open right now anyway. Nothing is open right now. But um, and I hope that his dying didn't cause the the place to close. But at Michou, there is a little stage, but it's also a place to eat. And so the waiter comes and he takes your order. And then 30 minutes later, the waiter is on stage in a costume as Liza Minnelli or Sophia Loren or Zizi Jean-Mer or Josephine Baker. And lip syncing. And our particular waiter did impersonate all four of those women, and he lip synced mm. all of them. And the other waiters lip synced and performed as other French stars. And there was only one who didn't impersonate. He had come up with his own character, I remember. And he was a heavy set guy. He looked a little bit like Divine. And I remember he performed, he lip synced to a recording of Carmen the Opera. And he was very funny and comic. The others were pretty much. Here's Liza Minnelli. You know, I'm doing mm -hmm. my Liza sure. Minnelli impersonation. Mm -hmm. I'm doing now. I'm doing my Zizi Jean-Mer impersonation. But the thing is, Dan, they were lip syncing, and I thought they were doing it better than what I had seen in Mississippi and other places. And that's when I started thinking, hmm, hmm, this is Paris, and they're lip syncing, and they seem like they're doing it better than what I've seen before. Maybe I can be even better than that. Maybe I should do lip syncing. I didn't want to be a celebrity impersonator as much as I admired them. I didn't. I was trying to think, what could I do that would be unique and at the same time be rooted in a gay tradition? And I thought, well, well you've got to come up with a name that tells the audience that you have what you're doing and that you have a sense of humor about what you're doing. And the name should also be kind of exotic and mysterious and chic. Had you discussed this with any friends that 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 you planned on possibly creating some sort of drag uh, no, career? Because so I was is... afraid they would think I was crazy, okay. <laughs> you know, and they would like roll their eyes and like, "You are you kidding?" So I I was very fascinated by fashion models and fashion photographs, and I already did have the idea that a fashion runway could be theater also. And when I moved to New York in 78, hanging at the Metropolitan Museum still was the very popular at the time, enormous 
Richard Avedon exhibit, mostly of fashion photographs, huge black and white photographs. In the book and at the exhibit, it showed you with the names of the models. There was a model named Dovima, a very famous photograph called Dovima and the Elephants. And then there was the model Varushka and the model Wilhelmina and Apollonia. So that's how the name Lipsinka came to me, because it sounded to me like an exotic one-name fashion model, but it also <laughs> sounds like someone who lip-syncs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, has, and has a sense of humor about it. And, and this, from, from my research of you, uh, you know, my in-depth research of you, this Dolores Gray singer, was that someone that you had admired for a long time, or you just stumbled upon like you did with the models? Well, that was the final element that I was about to tell you. That okay. I was a movie, was and am a movie buff. And uh, on Broadway, just north of Lincoln Center, there was a what had what had been a neighborhood movie theater when it was built, probably in the 30s or 40s, called the Regency. But by the time I moved to New York, it was a revival house because old movies were popular again. And I was going there a lot, and they were. I wanted to see MGM musicals, as I mentioned earlier. I'd seen That's Entertainment and June Allison and all of that. So I knew by then what movies were MGM and which ones weren't. <laughs> and they were showing a movie, an MGM musical that I had never seen called It's Always Fair Weather, starring Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly. Those are the names that I knew. Written by Comden and Green. I knew those names. Comden and Green had written Singing in the Rain. And so I went to see this movie, It's Always Fair Weather, and there was Jane Kelly, and there was Sid Charisse, but then on came this woman that I had never heard of, had never seen before. Incredible looking, fantastic voice, big style, the way she used her arms, the way she used her whole body, and her name was Dolores Gray, and I thought to myself, that's it, okay? You don't want to be a celebrity impersonator that's been done you don't want to be a Cher impersonator. You don't want to be a Liza impersonator. You don't want to be a Barbara impersonator, Barbara Streisand impersonator. But you can steal this woman's shtick. And so I started modeling myself after her and those fashion models and lip syncing. And that's how it all came together. And the, the makeup and the but hair. But it took a while. Absolutely. The hair and the makeup, is that something that you learned to do yourself or do you reach out to, to ask people to help? I did want the eyebrows to be very high and extreme and arched because of, because of if you look at any close-ups of Dovima from that period, she has very uh, arched eyebrows. And a makeup artist advised me about that, how to do that, how to cover my own eyebrows. And the hair, the hair, you know, I didn't get that together for a long time. That kept evolving. And had you seen any drag queens regularly, like at Club 57 or at this time frame, that were inspiring you? Like, oh, let me try to get my eyebrows like them as well, or let me find out what they're doing so I can maybe achieve my look? No, I can't say that I did, but because there wasn't much drag at Club 57, I hasten to add because Anne, who was the manager, Anne Magnuson, Anne didn't want Club 57 to be perceived as a gay club, and and I was right, and she was right about that. I agree with her. That 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 was a place for everybody, and there were lots of straight identifying people there, and so she was right to be concerned about that. 
Um, but one one drag performer that I was quite taken with, although he was a celebrity impersonator, but I was still quite fascinated by him. Uh, he was a star of a movie, a 1977 Canadian movie called Outrageous, and his name was Craig Russell. The movie's on YouTube. You can see it for free on YouTube. It's an excellent movie. I think it's still the best movie, the best feature film, I mean, about a drag performer, Craig Russell. But like I said, he was uh he was a celebrity impersonator, but he and he wasn't lip syncing. He was mm-hmm. he could sing and managed to look like all these different people. He was very inspiring to me because I saw, oh yeah, here's another person. Here's another one. There's Charles Ludlum. There's Charles Pierce. There's Craig. Now this guy, Craig Russell. There's Divine. There's Jackie Curtis. You know, this can be done. This mm-hmm. can be done. You can make a career out of this. I was telling myself. <laughs> you come up with a name and you have the Dolores Gray image that you kind of want to bite off from. And you have the the name. And when does when does the lip sync uh, performance or the defining moment where Lipsinka decides that, that she's going to make a, an appearance or a performance somewhere? It was probably around May of 1982 when I thought of the name, and the name is also the concept, decided to incorporate the Dovima and the Dolores Gray. All of that coalesced around May of 1982. I don't remember the first performance I did. Did you want As to? Yeah. Did you did you plan on creating a show where people would buy tickets, or do you think was your thought pattern that you were just going to be part of a drag show for the debut, or were you thinking larger that no, I gotta perf- I gotta sell tickets to a, a, a some sort of I gotta devise some sort of a, a, a theatrical presentation of this character that I'm creating. Well, I got bookings in cabarets in west in the west village which were a little more high profile than the east village and you got those because you knew people or they had seen mm, you somewhere i had to convince them to give me a booking you know i had mm-hmm. to i had to go and meet the people who booked the room and convince them to give me a night it wasn't very successful because i had to beg my friends to show up you know nobody <laughs> Nobody knew who I was, and you did have to pay a cover charge, and there was a two-drink minimum. That was uh, frustrating, but then what happened was I bumped into John Sex again. There's that name again, John Sex. From Club 57, the performer that used to run the show. I met him at Club 57, yes, and Club 57 by this time, 84, was closed, and so I bumped into John, and he said, are you performing anywhere? And I said, no, and he said, well, you should be. And he said, why don't you perform at the Pyramid Club, which had kind of picked up where Club 57 had left off. And I said, but I don't know anybody there. And he said, well, I do. I've got a booking there this coming Saturday. Come to my show. See my show. I'll put you on the list. And then I'll introduce you to the people who run it, and they'll give you a booking. And they did. I met them. They booked me on a Sunday night, which was their gay night. John's show, I, his, he was performing there on Saturday night, and it was the Saturday was a very straight bridge and tunnel crowd, but Sunday night was a gay night. They gave me a booking. I was one of a few people who performed on Sunday night, but that was the big turning point because I didn't have to promote myself. The audience was going to be there anyway. The audience at the Sunday night at the Pyramid, they were going to come to see no matter what. 
because there was dancing and a show and drinking, and then there was no minimum. You just had to pay to get in. And if you wanted a drink, you got one. And if you didn't want one, you didn't have to get one. That audience, they loved everything, no matter how bad it may have been, how poorly rehearsed it may have been. They didn't care. And I had rehearsed. I was, I really cared. And so that was the first time I really heard the audience applause that I had been craving all those years. And I was addicted to it. I wanted it again. <laughs> month. I wanted another booking in a month, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they the, were giving me bookings and I was becoming more popular. And the performance that you were doing, had it become the style that your shows eventually became or were you just doing full performances at that time? Were you doing full, full uh, renditions of songs or, or, or excerpts from movies? There was no extreme editing that was involved yet or was there? No, there wasn't. Okay. No, I, I was just like at Club 57. I'd go on stage and do a number in its entirety. I don't remember doing any kind of fancy editing at the beginning. It wasn't until some time went by that I realized I could do that, that I realized, oh, you don't have to do the whole number. You can stop in the middle of it and put in something stupid that's completely, <laughs> juxtapo completely juxtaposed to what you were doing and then pick up what you had been doing again. You know, it was all, I guess, trial and error is the right word. It was, it was haphazard at the beginning. <laughs> Lipsinka is born at Club, Club Pyramid. And how long are you there before you move on to other clubs? Well, 84. So in 85, I wrote an original musical that was performed at the Pyramid. And I was performing Lipsinka also. And in 86, I wrote another original musical. And that was done at the Pyramid. And these musicals and these, that you these, are, are writing, are you involved as an actor or are you just writing the, the music? Both. But you're not in drag in these You're not in drag in yes. Oh, you are? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Book, music, and lyrics, and performing in drag. The first show was called Ballet of the Dolls, which was a parody of Valley of the Dolls and the ballet world. And the second show in 1986 was called Dial M for Model, <laughs> in which I played, and I played a fashion model named Mannequin St. Clair. So I was, still, I was still fascinated by the fashion world. Mm -hmm. And are you meeting people? So you have these these original original uh, productions that you're putting up, these parodies, and are people coming that are inspired by you that you've you've are known, you know, other performers, other drag queans that possibly have inspired you? Are they showing up? As it turns out, as it turns out, they were. Yeah. There were other. Uh, there were people who came to see those plays who said, you know, they would say years later, I was there at every performance of Ballet of the Dolls. I loved it so much. Well, you know, what did I know? And and the New York Times came and reviewed Dial in for Model at the Pyramid Club. So the parodies the parodies that, that you came up with, was that inspired by other performers that had done similar things? Or is that something that you just said, Oh, let's make this funny or let's just make this fun? I think I was doing my version, my music theater version of what I had seen Divine and, and the Neon awesome. Woman and Charles Ludlam and and uh, Camille and Charles Bush and Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. But they didn't write songs. I yeah, did. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, awesome. I, was, I was writing musicals, but it was Lip Synca also happening at the same time. And that was taking off more than the musicals were. The Lip Synca fame 
do, do you still stay, stay as a solo producer or do other people come on board saying, let's take it this direction or let's take it this direction? Or is it something you just pre-plan that when the extreme editing comes into play, does that come from an outside source or you just say, oh, this is what I want to do? There's several questions there, but yeah. the editing was something that I came up with on my own. Like I said, it, it occurred to me, oh, I don't have to do a song all the way through. I can do just part of it and go to, and jump right to something else. And then that became, oh, I can do even more of that and more and more. And then I can use this phone stuff and make the don't... phone ring and pick up the imaginary phone and say whatever I want to. <laughs> and I was doing, no, and, but no... I was doing that on my own. I was pushing the button, the pause button on my recorder at home. I wasn't, it didn't occur to me until later that I could go into a recording studio and actually cut tape, you know, and make mm -hmm. it sound professional. But I got to that point in 1987. I got a show for one night at La Mama, which is a, was and still is an important theater in the East Village and in New York in general. And I did that and went into a guy's recording studio at his home and cut tape and created this hour-long show. And then... I just want to interject what I think about you and your career that you had. That's the ingenious part of what, you know, for me, that you, what you laid down foundation-wise was just a seamless editing that's happened way before it becomes so easy to do today. So you're looking back at when there was no computers, really. You're actually cutting tape and doing it so seamlessly that it becomes as if it's just one person. And I took the attitude that even though it's lots of different voices, they're all the voice of Lipsinka. They're all mm. the voice of one person, and that person is Lipsinka. And just the expression, the, 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 the expression and just your facial movements, you think it's that one person. So the studying and the, you know, from listening to your story, that was all part of, of planting the seeds, seeing these acts and understanding now, knowing more about you, about where it all came from. It wasn't far, oh, I'm an actor. It's like you saw these other people that inspired you. You took little bits and put it together. And because when, when I watch you and your performances, even though the voices change, it's still because of your expressions and your inflections, you know, physically, it still seems as if it's your voice. That part to me is extremely brilliant for this part of performance generation. It's just seamless. And, and that's the brilliance that I see in you as, as, as a producer and, and actor is the, is the editing. It's amazing. And the performance, of course. The performance has to go hand in hand with the editing because as you say, the voice is changing. So... 87, I did that full-length show at La Mama for one night. You can see some of it on YouTube, on my YouTube page. And then I did a 35-minute show the next year. But in, in that 12 months that went by, a guy came up to me named Justin Ross. Justin Ross had been an actor on Broadway, an actor and dancer. He was in the second cast, the re first replacement cast of A Chorus Line on Broadway, and then he was in the movie of A Chorus Line, and uh, the mo that movie failed, and he was kind of disenchanted with show business, and he started drifting downtown, and he saw me perform somewhere, and he came up to me and said, if you ever want a director, let me know. So I asked him to work with me on this show in 1988. It was called The Many Moods of Lip Sync, 35 minutes, it's part of a New Works Festival that a small nonprofit was putting together. And we did that, and Charles Bush came to see it. 
and Charles's play, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, had been running for three years. But he came one night to see it, and he went back and told his roommate about it and said to the roommate, you know, maybe this Lipsinka show could be a late night show after Vampire Lesbians of Sodom for a few weekends. And so the roommate came and the roommate was the director of Vampire Lesbians and the general manager. And he said, add 25 minutes to it and I will produce it for four weeks as a late night show after Vampires. And so we did that and extended it for two more weeks, and then it moved to another off-Broadway theater where it ran for 10 months. And that's then what put me on the theater map. And then when I went to San Francisco and L.A., they knew who I was and the audience was built in. And so I had achieved that kind of, so what used to be called cult status. Mm-hmm. There used to be cult stars. Now there's only Donald Trump. But there used to be cult stars in the 70s, and I saw Divine as a cult star, and Craig Russell was a cult star, and Charles Pierce was a cult star. And so then then it happened for me, you know, because I had done that show basically for a year in New York, and it had gotten national and international press. And you decided, you traveled uh, throughout the U.S. with with Lipsinka? with the tours that you did? Yeah. Or did you, and then did you ever take it abroad to other countries? Yes, I did. I went to London and to Sydney and to Glasgow. And I was in Terry Mugler's fashion show in Paris and Tokyo. And is that how... That's a whole the- other story. <laughs> We've been talking for a really long time. Yeah, but I, I've got, we're, we're going to wrap it up. I just want to... So you, you, Terry Mugler... So on that note, so of course, uh, you know, I got started with with female impersonation of drag queens because I impersonated George Michael for many years and traveled the world doing that. And I know that you were in one of his music videos. So how did George Michael's music video, Too Funky, how did that come about? Because of the Terry Mugler and the fashion show? Well, Terry Mugler had seen I Could Go on Lip Syncing in 1989, the off-Broadway show that ran for a year. That's what planted the seed in his brain because he liked... He was a drag hag, you know, and he liked my show, and he was very bright, and he understood all the American references in it. But it wasn't until two and a half years later that he said, now I think we're ready to have you in the fashion show. And so I was in the show in Paris, and then we did it in Tokyo, and then we did it in April of 1982 in Los Angeles. And while we were doing it in Los Angeles, he said to me, I want you to come to Paris in June and be in a music video. I said, sure, I mean, any any reason to go to Paris. And so that's how it happened. And it, we shot for three days. It was very difficult. It was long, long hours. And sure. I mm-hmm. sat around, I sat around in full makeup and mm-hmm. fingernails and mm-hmm. wig for two days and didn't shoot a thing. And then the third day, they finally got around to me and... Uh, the bit of me that is in there. That was the third day. And I had been seeing this handsome guy hanging around who was obviously very handsome, very sexy, charismatic, but it didn't occur to me until later that, oh, that's George Michael. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're, we're, it's his music video, right. So the lip and he, he ended up directing the third day. He directed the third day. It was actually he who filmed me. Awesome. Awesome. So from your lip sync of fame, you 
you created any special relationships with people that you admired or celebrities from that from from touring and people coming to see you as audience members? Yeah, I guess that's going to sound name, name dropping, though. Well, I think you. I, I'm. I'll. I'll. I'll lean towards the Lily Tomlin uh, fan of yours. She becomes a good fan of yours. Yes, and a friend. Yes, and Paul Rubens and Isabella Rossellini and Debbie Mazar Mazar and mm -hmm. uh, Sandra Bernhard. There's a few others. Mm -hmm. And so now, John, is there is Lipsync retired, or do you think one day that might might uh, you might do some more? Or what's it, what's the plan for Lipsinka now? Is it kind of on hold? Well, everyone's retired right now. You know, there's no live performance going well, on. Everything's anywhere. Everything's incubating for the time that their live re live performance returns. So you think that when there's a day it does return, that maybe Lipsinka might come back? Well, I hope so. I I have spent the past several months finishing up. Uh, I hadn't written an original musical book lyrics and uh, music since Dial M for Model. And I have finished my first musical since 1986 in these past several months That is that I wrote for myself and another person. Don't know who that other person will be. I know who I'd like it to be. <laughs> And I am talking, you know, now theater companies aren't, can, since they're not going to do theater, they're making films instead as part of their theatrical season because they have subscribers and they have to put a season up. So it's possible that I will make a film awesome. with one of, the, one of those small nonprofit theater companies here in the city. And that, how do you... that, could, that could happen. Are you on social media where people can find out what, or do you have a website where people can go to to find out what Lipsinka might be up to or John Epperson? You can, if you go to my website, which is called lipsinka.com, and you have to spell it correctly, L-Y-P-S-I-N-K-A.com, and it has the links to my Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. Those are the four that I have. That's uh -huh. enough. Four, four is enough. <laughs> awesome. Well, John, I am grateful that you spent over an hour with me talking about your career. I'm really fascinated by it now that I've known so much. Over an hour, over an hour and a half. <laughs> and, now, and now, do you hear that sound? My The battery on my phone is going dead. We've been talking for so long. Well, it's, it was fascinating. And thank you. You're, you're a brilliant artist. And I, I'm very honored to have spoken to you. So thank you for your Thanks, time. Thanks, Dan. Let, let me know when, you're, when your link is up and ready to go. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. And remember, you all, my restaurant and entertainment venue, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs, where entertainment is on hold currently per COVID restrictions, but we are serving some great food most weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For a lovely meal and a lovely atmosphere, check out my restaurant, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs. We'll see you all there. Thank you for listening to Icon's Incredible Creation on Stage podcast, hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.